Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 10, 32-52. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Y'all have a seat. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Frontline. Hey, if you guys do not know me, uh, my name is Brandon, and uh, I get to serve as our uh, pastor of community here at the church. And, uh, and I want to say as we jump into this, uh, man, here at the church, uh, we, we love the Bible. Um, we believe that it is God's word. It is the truth. It is authoritative. Um, but as we read that passage, is it just me or does this feel like deja vu all over again? It's me and like two other people. So that's fine. That's fine. I'll just preach to those two people today. 
Um, no, no. Here, here's why I say that. This is, uh, in just the last couple of chapters uh, that we've, we've looked at in the last few weeks, in just the last couple of chapters, this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his own death. The third time. And uh, like we just saw, every time that Jesus has predicted his own death, it's always followed up with the disciples uh, just doing nonsense, right? Like they're jockeying for position, they're posturing, they're asking Jesus just some crazy questions, some pretty dumb questions, honestly. But here's the reality. As we've kind of trekked through the gospel of Mark, now 29 weeks in a row, what I've noticed is um, Mark doesn't seem to do things like this by accident, right? Like Mark just doesn't repeat himself for the sake of repeating himself, right? So there's a, there's a point to this, and, um, and, it, and it doesn't feel like Mark is just wasting words, right? He's writing to an audience that's very interested in, hey, dude, just get to the point. So today, what is the point? What is the point that Mark is trying to make? Well, I think what we're seeing here is that Mark is using repetition to highlight some things for us. So if you can jump back in the mental DeLorean and go back to English lit in high school, repetition is that thing. It's that literary device that's used to drive home a point. And we see this in uh, literature. We see this in poetry and books. We see this in film. Uh, so for example, uh, in his poem, Stopping by the Woods in the Snowy Evening by Robert Frost, which I know is probably the First thing everybody in this room thought of, uh, Robert Frost writes this, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. So he's using repetition here to drive home this point. He's, he's uh, in the woods, he's enjoying the beauty of the woods, but he's got a long day of work ahead of him. And so he's repeating that last line, miles to go before I sleep right? There's a long way to go. There's a lot of work to do. I've got a lot of responsibilities before I can pause and rest and enjoy the beauty here, right? Uh, maybe you guys need a, a more modern example of this. Uh, so uh, Stanley Kubrick's film, The Shining. Uh, we all remember this scene, if, you, if you've seen the, the, the movie, uh, where repetition clues us in that Jack Nicholson's character is losing it, right? When he starts to type out over and over and over again, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, right? Like that happens and you're like, he's nuts. He's lost it, right? The repetition kind of clues us in. Or who could forget Lil John's use of repetition Shots, 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 right? Now, I know that goes over some of your heads, but if you've got a keen uh, analytical eye, like you're going to read that and you're going to go like, this guy, he really likes shots is what I'm getting from this, this use of repetition. It's very effective. So here's why I say that. Mark is using this uh, literary device. Mark is using repetition He's reminding us and he's, he's paralleling these situations where Jesus is going like, hey, I'm going to die. It's going to look like this. Jesus is predicting his death and he's paralleling the repetition, the responses of the disciples, um, because even though the disciples are like totally getting it wrong, they're totally missing it. Listen, they're actually asking the right kinds of questions. They're actually coming to Jesus with the right kind of disposition. 
Here's what I mean. Just think about the last chapter alone. The last couple of weeks we've been in chapter 10 and, um, and everybody else that we've seen has come to Jesus with something in their hands, something to offer, something to wager with Jesus. The chapter opens up with the Pharisees coming to Jesus and what do they have? They're, they're bringing their intellect, their knowledge about all of the law. And they're, they're coming, their posture towards Jesus is aggressive. They want to trap him. They want to, they want to put him to the test. Last Sunday, we looked at the story of the, the rich young ruler who had kept the law from birth. And so what's he bringing? He's, he's coming and, uh, and he's got all of his, his works He's got man-centered religion, his good deeds, and he's bringing all of that to Jesus. He wants to persuade Jesus with his piety. But right in the middle of the chapter, look at what Jesus says, Mark 10, 15. This is what Jesus says in the middle of all of that. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. See, Jesus is saying, in the middle of Pharisees and rich young rulers, Jesus is saying, hey, it's not how strong or smart or pious, religious, any of that. It's not, it's not what you've got in your hands. You've actually got to come empty-handed. You've got to come to me like a small child. And, and, and how does a child come? With nothing to offer, nothing to give, everything to receive. Jesus is saying, that's how you come to me. And so I think by using repetition, Mark is highlighting the fact that the disciples are getting something right. Um, at least they're coming to Jesus and they're asking for stuff. It's dumb stuff. Don't get it twisted. Like, but they're asking for stuff. Like their hands are open. They're going, Jesus, we know that, that we lack something. We don't have some answers, but we think that you do. So we're, we're coming to you. Now with that in mind, Notice the fact that, that Mark is, is he's using the, the, this, this form of repetition to highlight the disciples' needs. Don't you think that it's also significant that in this passage, Jesus also responds two times verbatim with the same exact question. He says once to these disciples, James and John, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And then later on to this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, he says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Same exact wording. That seems really significant. And so we're going to dig into this. And that question is going to shape our time today. And, um, and we're going to jump into the text and we're going we're to try to, to, to dig into what the Bible says here. But I want to I do more than just read the Bible. Like I think there's always an invitation especially in a text like this, not just to read the Bible, but to let it read us. There's an invitation from Jesus, not just to hear that question ring out over Bartimaeus and over James and John, but for you and me, right? And so here's my question, friends. Like if, if you could just picture this for a moment, if Jesus were sitting across from you today in the flesh, his eyes fixed on yours, and he were to say to you, hey, what do you want me to do for you? What is it that comes to mind? What's the first thing? What's the, what's the deepest need that you would bring to him? What do you need from Jesus today? So once you, once you have that, 
I want you to just kind of hang on to that. We're going to wrestle with this today, and, uh, and we're going to try to deal with it. So Jesus asked this question of James and John. He's, he's going to ask this of Bartimaeus. And for the rest of our time, we're going, to, we're going to look at how this question is answered in each instance. So if you would uh, look again at Mark 10, 32. Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That is quite a turn. (laughs) And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? So Jesus asked this question. The very first thing that we see is number one. James and John give a bad answer. James and John give a bad answer. And based on that setup, no one should be shocked by this, right? Like if we can just, if we can just sort of picture this scene, here's Jesus pulling his 12 disciples aside. And for the third time, he's going to predict his death. And, uh, and it's a, it feels like a weighty and grim scene, right? you would think the disciples would just kind of be taking this in and letting it wash over them and that their, their demeanor would just be like, wow, this is crazy. Like, like this is really about to happen. Like Jesus is, is never more explicit about his death as he predicts it than he is here. Um, at this point, they're only about 15 miles away from Jerusalem where this is all gonna take place. Jesus is on his way to die. And then, with just the worst timing ever, here come James and John. They strut up, and they basically ask for a blank check. Hey, Jesus, we're going to ask you a question, but before we ask that question, we just want you to say yes. Now, I know that's weird, but we're going to roll with that, okay? And so that's what they do. And I just want to say, like, if anybody ever comes to you and they say, like, hey, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. Like, you just need to proceed with caution because that's super weird, okay? And of course, Jesus is wise. And so here's how he responds. What do you want me to do for you? So verse 37, here's their request. They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So a few things about this. Number one, James and John are pretty sneaky, right? Like the, the phrasing is intentional in, in, this, uh, in this passage, right? They're saying, Jesus, when you're in your glory, right? Like there's no doubt that you're gonna be in your glory. And, and we're really excited about that. And also like we wanna be on your right and on your left. We know that the king goes in the middle, right? So we're not trying to be in the middle. That's your spot, Jesus, right? So like all of this request is like they're, they're coming to Jesus and they're making their request of Jesus and it's all veiled in praise for Jesus. But it's all just like false. It's all fake. But we do this, don't we? Like, have you experienced this? And, and don't lie, like we're in church. But like, like I've done this, right? You've done this. Like you want something from God and you think like, man, maybe, 
maybe if I just like do a little more, maybe if I just like worship a little harder, maybe if I read my Bible a little more often, give a little bit more, and, and, and we're not like articulating it this way, but, but in the back of our mind, we think like, Maybe if I just praise him a little more, maybe if I veil it all in praise, maybe then I can manipulate God and I can get what I want out of him. Hey, can I let you in on the secret? Like he's not fooled. (laughs) He's not fooled when me and you do it. He's not fooled when James and John do it. Now, the second thing here is consider the trajectory of the two disciples who are making this request. James and John, you remember who they were when Jesus met them? They were fishermen. They were not of noble birth. They were, they were not anything special. And yet by this point in the narrative, they've seen Jesus do incredible things, right? They've, they've walked with him for a bit. They've, they've witnessed several miracles. They, these two men were two of the three disciples that got to go up the mountaintop of transfiguration. So James and John have actually seen Jesus in his glory, at at transfiguration. And yet here they are now and their request is, hey, Jesus, we really feel like it's our turn. Like now we really want a piece of the pie and and what we really want is we want to be seen, right? Like, Like we want to be great in this moment. This, this makes me, um, think of what I believe, in my humble yet accurate opinion, is the best Disney film of all time, and that is Aladdin. And uh, that's a hill I'm willing to die on, but it, it just is. And uh, the best part of that film is, uh, is the relationship between Aladdin and the genie and their friendship. And, um, and what I love about that is that it's pure and it's real and it's genuine. And yet there's this point in the, the movie where Aladdin uh, starts to see the genie as just a means to an end, right? And he go, there's this moment where he just goes like, hey, you're a genie, like you grant wishes. So why don't I just like use you to get the life that I really want, to make a name for myself, to become somebody, to actually get the good life. And so he does that. And and as a result, he actually trades in his friendship with the genie. And in the process, he trades in his integrity. He trades in his identity and his very soul just to realize that the good life was actually right in front of him all along. For some of us, And that's the way we sometimes view Jesus. Like we look at Jesus like this genie and and it's not enough to be on the road with Jesus, right? It's, It's not enough to be with Jesus as a disciple. We're somehow blind to the fact that being with Jesus, even like James and John, seeing him in his glory still isn't enough. And in our blindness to that reality, we start to go, hey, Jesus, um, I used to want you, but now I kind of just want the stuff that you can get me, right? Now, um, I kind of want to be the one in the spotlight. I kind of want to be seen. I kind of just want your stuff. And in his faithfulness, because he knows what we need way more than we do, Jesus says, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Verse 38, Jesus says to these disciples, He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink 
or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. These are metaphors for suffering. The suffering, by the way, that Jesus just now talked about, like a minute ago, right? They're on the road to Jerusalem where all this suffering is gonna take place. But then verse 39, they said to him, we are able. <laughs> these, these disciples, like let's remember their nickname, James and John, was Sons of Thunder. So of course, they're like, oh yeah, cup of suffering, like we can totally handle that. Like we've got this, Jesus. We can totally handle that. And Jesus is in his love and in humility. He's looking at, at these two men and, uh, and he's going like, hey, I know you feel like you're being brave. I know this feels like a courageous, heroic moment for you, but you really do not know what you're asking. In their minds, they're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be elevated to his rightful place as king. Tim Keller says it like this, to to them, in your glory means when you are seated on your throne. In which case, the people on the right and the left are like the prime minister and the chief of staff. John and James are saying, when you take power, we would like the top places in your cabinet. Here's the irony of their request. What was Jesus' moment of greatest glory? Where does Jesus most show forth the glory of God's justice? And where does he reveal most profoundly the glory of God's love? On the cross. When Jesus is at the actual moment of his greatest glory, there will be somebody on the right and the left, but they will be criminals being crucified. And Jesus says to John and James, you have no idea what you're asking. And so Jesus, in love, with mercy, is unpacking this. And even as he does, there's James and John. We got this. They are undeterred. And then the rest of the disciples chime in. Verse 41, the 10 heard it, and they began to be indignant at James and John. What's underneath all of this? Well, I I don't think that the rest of the disciples are upset with James and John and going, Like, hey, do you guys really not remember? Jesus just taught on this very thing in chapter nine. Were you not taking notes? Like, I don't think anybody is like upset that James and John just missed it in this case. You know what I think they're upset about? They're upset because they didn't already ask Jesus for this. They're upset because James and John are asking Jesus for the thing that they want. They're upset because they also really want the glory and the greatness for themselves. And they, like James and John, are willing to trade Jesus in for it. And just as in other times when the disciples have missed the point, Jesus uses this as an opportunity for discipleship. So look in verse 42 at the way Jesus responds to his disciples. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, the problem with what James and John are asking is that it's the exact same broken political structure that's already in place, just with a different leader at the top. They're picturing a scenario 
where they march into Jerusalem. Jesus takes the throne by force. They defeat the Romans, and there's a new sheriff in town, but really it's the same old thing. But for some reason, they think, hey, we deserve this. Like, we have a right to that form of leadership. We've somehow earned this. And what Jesus is getting at here is, no, in in this kingdom, it's not just that it's the same leadership structure with a different king ruling at the top with an iron fist, abusing authority, oppressing others. He's saying, no, in my kingdom, the first among you has to be a slave and a servant. It's completely upside down. And I have to think, like, this would probably feel really offensive to these disciples as they hear Jesus say this. Like, is he just putting us in our place? Like, is Jesus t- trying to keep us down? Is Jesus telling us, like, no, you guys have to know your role. You don't get a seat at the table. Except Jesus says, no, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. This changes everything. Jesus isn't like the boss who has these strict rules for all the employees, right? Standards for everybody else. Meanwhile, he goes and plays golf three days a week, right? Jesus says, no, in my kingdom, even the very king comes in the form of a slave, right? So if you're James and John, this is probably the moment where you say to each other, I think we answered that question wrong. (laughs) I think we might've missed something here. But, for all the ways the disciples have missed it and and in all the ways that the gospel of Mark um, has been pointing at and had had references and teaching around discipleship, here we're finally gonna see a model disciple. Verse 46, so they came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you and throwing off his cloak. He sprang up, he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So again, Jesus asked this question, but this time what we see is that where James and John gave a really bad answer, number two, Bartimaeus gives a good answer. And again, Mark is using repetition of this question to drive home a point. So notice the the contrast between Bartimaeus and the disciples. James and John have been following Jesus for years. And this is Bartimaeus' first encounter with Jesus. James and John have been up close and personal. And Bartimaeus sits on the roadside. James and John have seen Jesus' glory in the transfiguration. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. James and John call him teacher, but Bartimaeus calls him son of David. He sees Jesus as way more than a teacher. He sees him as Savior and Lord. 
So from jump, we're supposed to see this story in contrast to that of James and John. James and John, that's the negative portrait. This is the positive. As we look at Bartimaeus, you just see his actions. He's completely undeterred by others. His only objective here is to get to Jesus. That's all he wants. All right? The crowd tries to silence him. He just shouts all the more, all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and when Jesus finally calls to him, he leaves his cloak behind, which would have been his most prized possession, right? This is, this is literally his security blanket. And what does he do? He throws it off, he forsakes it, he leaves it behind, and he doesn't sort of like meander over to Jesus. He springs up and he heads to Jesus in every way. This man is zealous to meet his maker. So with that kind of contrast between these two stories, isn't it interesting then, friends, how Jesus interacts with Bartimaeus? As Bartimaeus approaches, Jesus asks the question that we've heard before, what do you want me to do for you? And again, Mark clues us in. We are supposed to read Bartimaeus in contrast to James and John. Notice the different answers to that question from Jesus. James and John want fame. Bartimaeus wants sight. James and John are full of pride. And Bartimaeus is full of faith. What we're left with here is this juxtaposition of these two disciples who really don't know what they need. James and John have been around Jesus long enough to feel like Jesus is somehow, like he, Jesus is the lucky one to have them, right? They've seen him in his glory, but somehow they're blind to it. Like James and John are the, the blind ones in this story. So their request to Jesus is basically, hey, Jesus, we want everybody to see us. That's our request to you. And Bartimaeus is the disciple who knows, I have nothing to give. I'm a blind beggar. I, I bring nothing to the table here. But if my eyes are opened, I might see Jesus. So James and John give their answer and Bartimaeus gives his answer. There's one more thing we see in this passage and it's this, number three, Jesus is the best answer. Jesus is the best answer. Let's back up, look again at verse 45. Jesus says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I read that earlier and left off the ending. That wasn't to bother you, at least not all of you. Um, but it was intentional because that sometimes is how we read the teachings of Jesus. But to take that in context, when we, when we leave off the end of that verse, the impression that we're left with is that we serve because Jesus served, nothing more. Like all we're left with is imitation. But what happens if we, if we construe the passage that way is that we fall completely short of the gospel. If the passage stops there, what we have is a, a wider and a higher and a more extreme uh, model of a religious teacher who we're called to just imitate, right? Disciples, get on the path and just follow Jesus. Just imitate him. Just be like him. Bartimaeus, 
open up your eyes and try your best to follow Jesus. But that's it. That's all we get. We get a teacher to imitate and nothing more. Now, don't get me wrong. Imitation is really crucial for the Christian life. We should uh, try to imitate Jesus. He's our model in all things, but praise be to God, he is not only our model. Jesus is also our ransom. He's also our ransom. And this is really important for us to grasp. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has already told us that he will die. And he's even told us a few times how he will die. But this is the very first time uh, that Jesus tells us why he will die. He tells us that he's going to die to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Unlike every founder of every major world religion whose purpose was to live and be an example, Jesus comes and his purpose is to die and be a sacrifice, to be a ransom. Now, the whole idea of a ransom is pretty foreign to us, unless you're a kidnapper. Um, Come see me at the end if you're a kidnapper. Um, but uh, we don't have, like, we don't, we, don't, uh, we, don't, we don't think in terms of ransom, but in Mark's day, um, the big idea was that a ransom was to, uh, to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner by paying a debt that they could never afford. That's what a ransom was. Now, here's why I say that Jesus is the best answer. Because you and I owed a debt that we could never afford, right? Like, Friends, every single one of us in this room, we have sinned against a good and holy and perfect God and we've accrued a sin debt that we could never afford apart from Jesus. We are slaves to sin, children of wrath, enemies of God and prisoners in the domain of darkness. And Jesus has come, we, we see him here going to the cross and not just like a generic cross, it's our cross. It's the cross that, that we deserve And Jesus is going to that cross where he's going to die in our place for our sin. And the alternative is, without a ransom, without Jesus, is that we we pay that debt on our own. We go to our own cross. We stay in those chains of bondage, and we pay that debt on our own. So I I don't know about you, but as I wrestle with that question that Jesus has asked, what do you want me to do for you in light of all that? I think about, man, all of my answers just feel so incredibly trivial. I really don't see my deepest need. I really don't see the depth of my need, but Jesus does. Praise God, Jesus sees it. And he has mercy on us in our blindness. And he doesn't only restore our sight here, um, right? There's, there's not a huge difference between a blind slave and a seeing slave, right? Or a blind prisoner and a seeing prisoner. But look at what happens when Jesus restores Bartimaeus' sight. It's a whole lot more. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. I love this so much. Bartimaeus here is a picture of what it is to be saved by Jesus, to be ransomed, to receive the kingdom like a child. He's on the side of the road and he's crying out, helpless, unable to do anything for himself, just crying out to the only one who can help. 
Apart from Jesus, that's all any of us can ever do. And Jesus comes to him, and I love this. Like, I love that the text specifically says that Jesus stopped. Like, Jesus' purpose, like he said in this text, like the reason that he came was to go to the cross, and he pauses here. He stops He looks this man in the eye. He doesn't treat him like a project or a social problem. He doesn't try to quiet him like the rest of the crowd does. Jesus bestows dignity onto this blind beggar, treats him like a human being, maybe for the very first time in his life. And he asks this man the very same thing that he asks some of his best friends in the world. What do you want me to do for you? Now, what's crazy is Jesus knows his deepest need. Just like he knows the deepest need of James and John, and he knows the deepest needs of you and me. But Jesus doesn't wait on us to give him the perfect answer. Jesus wants to give us sight so that we can see that he is the perfect answer. Right? He's the one that we need. So what do we do with this? Well, Bartimaeus is made well. And in, in the Greek, the word here, made well, is the word sozo, which means healed, and it also means saved. So Jesus is essentially saying here, both your faith has healed you and your faith has saved you. Mark writes that Bartimaeus received his sight and then he followed him on the way right? That's another way of saying he followed Jesus. He followed Jesus in the way of Jesus. So Jesus has transformed Bartimaeus from a blind beggar on the side of the road to a seeing disciple on the road. What would we do with this? Listen, if you are ransomed from slavery, you don't go back to chains of slavery, In Bartimaeus' case, you don't go back to the side of the road and keep on begging, you follow Jesus. If you're James and John, you don't find people to serve you, you find people to serve. If Jesus ransoms you from slavery, you are free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. So friends, I don't know where you find yourself today. Um, Maybe you identify with Bartimaeus' story today. Maybe that feels like it really rings true. Maybe you feel like, oh man, I'm in that spot. Maybe, maybe you're somebody and you're here and you're like, I actually kind of identify with James and John. Like I feel like, um, I feel like my story is much more frustrating. But wherever you're at, Jesus is asking you that same question. What do you want me to do for you? And he's doing that and he's uncovering your deepest need. And it's not on you to answer that question perfectly today, friends, but to see that Jesus is the perfect answer.